Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 100, The End Has No End. Indeed, at 100 episodes of the The Apologetics Podcast, there seems to be no end in sight, uh, which has me really thrilled and looking forward to the future. It's been just over two years since I began the podcast, if I recall correctly, uh, and I never really imagined it becoming what it has become, so I want to thank all of you who continue to listen, and I'm going to do my best to keep interesting and challenging content and guests coming your way. This episode contains part one of my interview with former hyperpreterist Sam Frost, but I have just a couple of things that I want to mention first. Uh, several of you have emailed me with suggestions for interview guests. Thanks for those, and rest assured that I've taken note of them, uh, and will certainly be carefully considering them all. And I mention this because if any of you would like me to consider inviting a guest on uh, to talk about some topic or another, please don't hesitate to email me at chris at theapologetics.com uh, with your suggestion. Uh, as of right now, I've got two more interviews lined up besides the one that you'll be listening to in this and next episode. In episode 102, you'll hear me interview Emilio Ramos on his new book on the theology of conversion and evangelism. And in episode 103, maybe even 104 as well if it goes long, you'll hear egalitarian Dr. Philip Payne's response to the recent appearance of Jim Hamilton on my show. Uh, beyond that, I've got nothing scheduled, so I'm looking for some inter interesting guests, and uh, your recommendations are appreciated. It'll help me to reach out to guests and have them on the show. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention is that I'm going to be in Orange, California on the 28th of this month. Uh, for those of you listening in the future right now, it's uh, September 2012. Uh, a documentary is coming out called Hellbound, and Lord willing, I'm going to be flying down to Orange to watch a screening of it with some fellow contributors at RethinkingHell.com. So if you live in or near Orange, and maybe you'd like to meet me or any of the RethinkingHell.com team, plan on being at the AMC Orange 30 Theater at 20 City Boulevard West in Orange, California on September 28th. The showtime isn't available yet, but keep an eye on the theater listing at, at uh, HellboundTheMovie.com. Uh, hopefully that information will be available soon. Uh, if you you know, if you have any questions or anything, feel free to email me at chris at theapologetics.com. Uh, I'll be there. Again, all of this is Lord willing, of course, but right now the plan is that I'll be there. Uh, my friend Joe, Joey Deer will be there. Um, you might recall that I did a roundtable with him and Ronnie Demler, who also plans on being there. Uh, and then uh, a couple of people who aren't yet listed on the Rethinking Health team are planning on being there as well. Their names are Greg Stump and Josh Anderson. So uh, it'll be in, uh, there'll be several of us there if you'd like to meet us, and uh, you know, we'll look forward to seeing you there. That's all that I had for today. Next up in my promo rotation is Jamin Hubner's The Provocative Microphone of the Christian Religion. Why can't we try hey, this is Jamin Hubner for RealApologetics.org and the host of The Provocative Microphone. Real Apologetics has all the basic goals of defending the faith and building up the church, but we give special attention to how this is done. We believe that our theology determines our effectiveness as Christian apologists. We are reformed in our soteriology, covenantal in our hermeneutic, and presuppositional in our method. So check out realapologetics.org. I've really enjoyed Jamin's appearances on this show. He was on the show with me some time ago to talk about inerrancy, and then he also was on the show to debate the topic of baptism with Eastern Orthodox theologian Laurent Cleanwork. Uh, great. He's very bright. Uh, I, I enjoy his show and his blogs. Um, so I would encourage you to check out his website at realapologetics.org. You can also subscribe to his podcast, The Provocative Microphone of the Christian Religion, um, by going to realapologetics.org, real or you can uh, check it find it in the iTunes store. Uh, so anyway, uh, with that, let's go ahead and move into today's interview with Sam Frost. I'm joined today by my guest, Sam Frost, president of Reign of Christ Ministries and author of Hyperpreterist Works' Misplaced Hope, Exegetical Essays on the Resurrection of the Dead, and House Divided with co-authors Mike Sullivan, Dave Green, and Ed Hassert. 
Sam has lectured extensively for over eight years at hyperpreterist conferences and was highly influential in the hyperpreterist movement, but he joins me today to share his story out of hyperpreterism and into orthodoxy, as he tells in his soon-to-be-published book, Why I Left Full Preterism. Thanks for being here to share your story, Sam. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, I'd like to begin many of my interviews by asking my guests to shared a testimony of sorts, coming to faith in Christ. And since we're going to be talking about your life story uh, spanning several years and transitions in, out of, in and out of orthodoxy, perhaps it's fitting to ask you about the beginning to your Christian walk. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I was uh, practically raised in the church, you know, all of my life, um, baptized at the age of six out of a, in the Foursquare Gospel Church. Um, you know, Amy Simple McPherson founded it, Jack Hayford. I think they have Life Life Ministry, L-I-F-E, in California is their main um, seminary. So it's a fairly large Pentecostal holiness kind of denomination. Um, so that was my background. Did you uh, did you believe early on? Or? Oh, yes. I, I, my mom, I mean, she still saved all my books at the age of four, five, and six. <laughs> she said that all that you wanted to do and talk about was Jesus and all that you wanted for Christmas were big, you know, those big giant coffee book Bibles with mm. the pictures, you know, you know, the big giant ones that'll choke a mule. <laughs> That's um, incredible. And I drew the Gospels as a child. I would draw out the the whole stories, and um, you know, she still saved all of those. So yeah, I, I've I I can't remember a time where I have not believed that Jesus Christ is Lord. I, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it's, it, I don't. I didn't have a quote-unquote conversion experience or any of that kind of stuff. Sure. Well, we're going to talk about preterism in a moment and about the differences between preterism and hyperpreterism, but you didn't originally hold to either of those uh, eschatological positions. Can, can you tell us about what you did believe about the end times and, and what it is that got you rethinking your eschatology in the first place? Well, Foursquare being coming out of the holiness Pentecostal kind of uh, movements in the 50s, most Pentecostalist kind of came they adopted a dispensationalist point of view. Mm. Um, so that was my background, was dispensationalism. I remember as a kid in, uh, I think it was 74, 75, somewhere around there, the movie came out, The Late Great Planet Earth, which was based upon Hal Lindsey's work, and Orson Welles, you know, the great Orson Welles narrated it. I remember watching, they showed it in our church, and I remember watching this and just being scared to, like, my goodness, <laughs> you know, this... You know, and I preached this to my my friends at the time in you know third, fourth, fifth grade. They would mm. always be asking me about you know when's that when's the moon gonna turn to blood and you know, what's that gonna look like? Is the earth? And I said, yeah, it's got, the Earth is gonna split in three parts, you know, and asteroids are gonna come crashing down out of the you know yeah. the whole thing. And I would preach this and um, as at an early age. So that was my that was my background. And I up until my uh, junior senior year in uh, Bible college where I got a bachelor of theology in Pensacola I really didn't question any other view I didn't know about reformed theology I didn't know about any of that stuff and charismatic thinking you're just concentrating on walking in the spirit kind of mm -hmm. stuff you're not really concentrating on history or Christian theology or any of that kind of stuff so Bible college was a real eye-opener and that's ironically it was an interdenominational college but it was fairly charismatic um, that's where I was introduced to the Reformed faith. One of the guys, because Charismatics drew in, it was an eclectic movement, especially in the 80s, you know, where it was really hitting the, the you know, you had Christian contemporary music and everything in the 80s for that kind of scene was, was big. And mm. plus you had Ronald Reagan in the office and the moral majority. You had, you know, it was a real big thing to be involved with. And the college campus was packed. I lived on the dorm for four years. And so... The charismatic movement had Baptists and Methodists, and I mean, it was drawing in from all sorts of denominations. People would get the gifts of the Spirit. Hmm. And it was a guy that came out of the Presbyterian background who uh, apparently got the gifts of the Spirit. Um, and he handed me Lorraine Bettner's The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. Hmm. And that book, I never had read anything like that in my life. Yeah. And that changed everything. And then the ju my junior year, two professors came on board uh, one was from Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, Professor Longino, and another one was from some Summer Institutes of Linguistics, and also completed his work at Wheaton. And he was Reformed in background, and he started introducing me to Rush Dooney, Gary North, and a lot of other Reformed 
things, and plus he was a linguist and a Bible translator in indigenous languages, uh, worked with Wycliffe and all of that. So that introduced me to that whole world. Sure. That just opened up the whole thing for me, and that's where I began to read um, David Chilton's Paradise Restored. That opened my eyes up to stuff that I had never heard before, and it was exciting. Hmm. And then I devoured everything. Then that's where the theology bug really kicked, as in my junior year. Up until that time, I wasn't really interested in theology. I was just getting through Bible college and was probably going to be a youth minister, you know, or something like that. And um, that's where the bug hit. And once it hit, that was the end of that. I just <laughs> devoured the library that was there on campus. I read everything that I could possibly get my hands on and read. I was just constant, and I still do today. But um, you know, that that's that was the background, and I. Never heard of preterism. You know, introduced to it probably the first time through David Chilton, Paradise Restored. That was that was, that was the book that did it. Well, okay, let's talk about preterism for a moment. Uh, in case some of the people listening now haven't listened to the episodes I've done on the topic, can you sort of define preterism for them and explain what really what what you read in Chilton, for example, that really convinced you that preterism rather than dispensationalism was what the Bible teaches about the end times? Well. We were reading, our textbook was How to Read the Bible for All That It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Um, it's just a nice nice little book on hermeneutics. And, of course, you've heard of Gordon Fee and, and Douglas Stewart, Douglas Stewart being an Old Testament scholar and, and Fee being a New Testament scholar. And they started introducing these types of principles of reading the Bible and, and original audience and what would they have understood and all of that kind of stuff. Now, again, in charismatic thinking, you just don't, you read the Bible for what it, what does it mean to me today? What's the Spirit of God saying to me? Hmm. That's how you read the Bible. And that's all I knew, really. I didn't hear about these hermeneutics and principles of you know, historical critical research and all that kind of stuff. You're just not interested in it. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, seeing the legitimacy of that and thinking, yeah, what would Revelation or Matthew 24? I mean, they did ask the question, so... Jesus did answer them, so what would that have meant? And that's where Chilton comes from, and he's he's bringing all that into bear. And it, I just, I don't know, it was like just a light went off, and there it was, and I saw it, and I'm like, yeah, mm. that's right. Um, dispensationalism wouldn't have applied to any of these guys yeah. in the original Bible. I mean, they just wouldn't have understood uh, any of this. And Paul does seem to quote the Old Testament a lot in saying this is that, and this means this, and... Um, something else is going on there than what I had been taught in dispensationalism. So I, I got hooked. Preterism is basically classically defined um, as the belief that a good majority of the New Testament prophecies are centered in on the Jewish wars of 66 to 70 A.D. and the final collapse of the temple and exile of Israel by the Roman armies in 70 A.D. So that's fairly yet in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, and of course, just for the sake of those listening, in case they're not familiar with our view, we're absolutely affirming, uh, preterism would actually would absolutely affirm that uh, a, a second advent, you know, a second oh, sure. return of Christ and the yep. bodily resurrection of all the dead. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay, well, unfortunately, I, th I think, and I'm sure you would agree, as it would turn out, you didn't just stop there. You didn't just stop at preterism. So explain for us what did it, what hyper, what hyper-preterism is, uh, or, or what is often called for full preterism. I, I tend to follow Didi's thinking, and I, I choose not to yeah. phraseology. But, but, but so explain hyper-preterism to us, and how, how it is that you were persuaded that preterism wasn't the full answer. Yeah, we got into a battle of words with Didi. She was one of my main opponents. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and we would go back and because we tried to hijack the word preterist just for ourselves exclusively. Mm. You know, we were the real preterists, and we came up pejoratively with this term "partial preterist," and that's how we would refer to Chilton and Gentry and Gary Demar and all these uh, kind of guys. We, <laughs> but it was a pejorative term. We were using it. Well, you can't be partially pregnant. You know, well, we would I, say stuff like that and, and try to ridicule these guys as partial preterists. Which can I? I want to step in for sounds, just a second, and because, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this. Oh is no, a, go ahead. I, I never thought that I would have heard this before because typically the the line the thinking goes, uh, it's 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 we're just simply calling it partial preterism because you don't believe that everything is in the past. You know, that's right. that's sort of the story that's told. But you're but you're telling me that that hyper preterists know. I did. I used it. Par I used it. Uh, I used it insultingly. Hmm many times just you know partial preterist because that's you know preterist is a latin word just means past mm -hmm. so how can something be partially past mm. you know that's that we would play with that 
I use the term full preterism to describe myself. I, I always thought that it was um, necessary to use the adjective full that distinguished it from classic preterism. Mm. And I thought that that was an honest thing to do. So I didn't really get on board with the whole, yeah, the preterist name is. I did sometimes. Some, I think at some point I did, and then I backed off a little bit and said, yeah, full preterist. What's wrong with that word? That's a good one. <laughs> okay. You know. But anyway. Um, so, yeah, so define, define hyperpreterism for us. Yeah. Yeah. Hyperpreter. This is something of a light that just came on. I explore this a little bit in the, in the book, and it really came on when I listened to a lecture by Jerry Johnson. Um, at the American Vision Conference in, in 2011, he, he was preaching on dispensationalism and why it was you know wrong or whatever. And he kept saying certain things, and I thought, you know, if I just replace dispensationalism with full preterism in your lecture, we sound like dispensationalists. Hmm. And I came out of a dispensationalist background. Well, what is the dispensationalist background? Well, the dispensationalist background is all or nothing in its approach towards prophecy. Hmm. It's an all or nothing approach. So where you see Matthew 24, that's connected to all of the other texts, Revelation, 2 Peter 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans chapter 8. All of those prophecies stand or fall together. Yeah. That's And dispensationalism hammers that. So when I saw preterism... I thought, yeah, this is good, 70 AD, I could understand this, and I can still believe in the resurrection of the dead, and I can still believe in the future coming of the Lord, and so I got into a kind of a post-millennial thing, but the more I continued to dawn, it dawned on me, I read, when I was reading Max King, Cross in the Parousia of Christ, that was the book that did it, I began to see that, wait a minute, if you're, if you're going to take Matthew 24 as fulfilled, and Second Peter chapter three is fulfilled. Then how in the world can you not take First Thessalonians four and First Corinthians fifteen as fulfilled? Well, this was Max King's approach, and his whole book is based on First Corinthians fifteen, the latter half of it. It's a seven hundred and eighty-eight page book. I mean, it's a huge volume, and he, he spends the whole half of showing if Matthew twenty-four is fulfilled, of which we can provide plenty of scholars for that. Then if they're consistent. Here's a big word for us. See, we're, con <laughs> we're consistent preterists. Mm. If you're consistent, then you're going to take all of it. Yeah. It's an all-or-nothing approach. Well, I never questioned that assumption. But that's my dispensationalist background talking. And I just, that was an, a, a hidden assumption that I carried with me. And so when I read Max King, I became convinced. I'm like, absolutely. You can't have the fulfillment of Matthew 24 in the, sa you know, the same language, trumpets, Parousia, all of that's used in 1 Corinthians 15, and, and it's used also in 1 Thessalonians 4. So it must mean that they're talking about the same events. I see. And there, there it was. And so, by logic, on that, based on that assumption, deductively, I was able to see that, yes, it's, this is all fulfilled. So we've got to, we have to reinterpret 1 Corinthians 15. And I was convinced. I was totally convinced. Yeah. That, that you know that that was it. It was it was Max King. Yeah. You know, so, so then, so just to make it clear for the listeners, then we're not talking when you say that everything is that hyperpeterists believe everything has been fulfilled. We mean hyperpeterists believe everything has been fulfilled. That we're Literally, talking about yeah. we're talking about the resurrection. We're talking oh, yeah, about the final judgment. At least to use language we would we use. Um, There's just, nothing in our future in it, terms of fulfillment. There's absolutely nothing historically in our future. There's nothing in terms of when you die and you go to heaven. That, that's a fulfillment of anything. I see. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, now you didn't simply. This, this is what's interesting to me. You you didn't simply embrace hyperpreterism and then and then sort of move on with your life. You, you were an apologist of sorts. For oh yeah. You. Like you said, you were one of Didi's chief opponents. You know. And, and by the way, just to make things clear, from what I understand, you guys are friends now. Is that right? Oh yes. Yeah, she's a wonderful sister in the in Christ, and we we've, we've had. Um, I haven't talked with her much. We we more write to each other. Hmm. Um, but yeah, she's we've yeah we're fine. Okay. Well, so so anyway, I mean, you became really influential within the movement, very accomplished. Tell us about these years during which you didn't just believe in hyperpreterism, but you were a very active promoter of it. Well, it, it was around 92 I read Max King's book, and um, I had done my Greek at a uh, an accredited seminary in Cleveland, Tennessee. I had a scholarship to go and do that. And, so, and then I got married, and then we had twins, and then I had to go to work. And I was doing, I was 
part-time at a cleaning uh, business, and this guy knew that, you know, I was, you know, educated and everything, had a good head on my shoulders, and so he kind of took me in and showed me the janitorial business. Hmm. And the next thing I know, um, because of my wife's connections, she's in the business world, I started landing all these big janitorial buildings, five-story buildings and floor, you know. So the next thing I know, I've got my own business. And I've got kids and I'm married. So from like 90, uh, you know, three to 1999, I, I wasn't active. I was just a business guy. Mm. Um, we were going to a reformed church. We weren't members uh, there because I could never sign up to be a member because I disagreed with it. So I just kind of held to these things myself. Keep in mind, in that span of years, the Internet wasn't really there mm. either. Um, so there wasn't any full preterist around me. Um, it, you know, it just it wasn't there. Well, I think in 97, 98, when the Internet really began to to uh, take off on an individual level where you could start going on to, uh, you know, American Online. You know, that was one of the big first things that everybody was signing up. But so there, I was just alone, and I just kept it to myself. But then the book, uh, R.C. Sproul, <laughs> came out with Last Days According to Jesus. That was a landmark book for me, by the it way. Was, it was huge. I, <laughs> and, you know, I'm still reading. I'm still, you know, slowly putting together some sort of master's, you know, degree with uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. I was taking a couple things there and doing some stuff with Whitfield Theological Seminary. So I was just drifting. I was just convinced that God wants me to be a businessman and maybe I wasn't a, a, going to be a teacher or anything. And I was, you know, just fine with that and whatever. Um, but there was that book. There it was. And I read it and went through it, and I'm like, oh, he's talking about Max King. He's got, <laughs> he's got Max King in here. And Ed Stevens and uh, J. Stuart Russell. I said, this is incredible because I was listening to R.C. back again in the 80s uh, when he was just starting with Ligonier Ministries. The Holiness of God was the first thing that my mother and I listened to, and we fell in love with R.C. ever since yeah. because of the reverence and the way that he uh, talked about God brought a sense of worship and reverence with it, and, you know, it's, it just made you worship God. And very winsome as well. Yes, and, it's, it's like, you know, that was like, wow, you know. So here's R.C. talking about Max King, which nobody knows. He's Church of Christ. Nobody knew that, you know, within, outside of the Church of Christ thing, you know, nobody really knew it. Chilton footnoted him in Days of Vengeance, his commentary on Revelation, and that's where I found out about Max and read Max, but outside of that, nobody really you know, knew, knew what this guy was. And I, I was interested. I'm like, how could he say the resurrection happened in 87? i got to read this. <laughs> so those years go by, and then Sproul comes out, and then he has a conference. And I live in Orlando. And he has this big conference, and Ken Gentry's going to be there. And um, that's where I met Max for the first time and his son, Tim King. And then they had a little mini-conference with Ed Stevens and John Noe. And I went over there to that conference, and I thought, there's more of you guys than I thought. You know, you guys are really, you really take this seriously and you really exist and you're out there. So that was encouraging. Um, so I'm, I'm back in Bible college or by, uh, seminary at RTS. Um, I'm doing my Hebrew there. And I see this book in the bookstore called The End of All Things by C. Jonathan Soraya. And I pick that up and, well, what's this about? And it's about... Ed Stevens and Max King. <laughs> I thought, oh, here's another book. Um, first of its kind, really. And I read through that, and his first chapter, The uh, Historical Implausibilities, sounded to me that he was using the creeds to demonstrate or prove that full preterism or hyper preterism was false. Yeah. And I was coming at it from, I was like, that's not sola scriptura. Sure. And. I wrote Misplaced Hope in three months. I gave the manuscript to Tim King, Max's son. Tim loved it, published it, wrote the foreword to it. And the next thing I know, the next several years of my life, all of a sudden I'm being invited to speak at all of these conferences roughly from uh, 2000 up all the way up to 2007, 2008. Wow. And uh, it just happened. It just, it just, it just happened. And uh, Tim King... You know, we sold a few thousand copies of Misplaced Hope, and that was my Sola Scriptura book. That was what, you know, this is what Sola Scriptura means, and it's an academic sort of work. Even Charles Hill, 
in the response, when shall these things be, he writes about it and says, you know, this is a thoroughgoing, uh, you know, attempt to, to save Max King, you know, in, in the movement and arguing from Sola Scriptura. So, yeah, that, that launched the whole thing. That I mean, I'm here I'm a janitor, <laughs> you know, and the next thing I know, people are buying me plane tickets and hotel rooms and asking me to come and speak on Misplaced Hope. Wow. And uh, that was... And then, then I got a call to the ch- a church, a Bible study group in St. Petersburg, and so we sold our business, moved our, moved my family to Valrico, and now I'm a past now I'm pastoring a church, a full preterist church. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't look for this stuff; it came to me, <laughs> right. and there it was. And I said, I was dumb enough to say yes to all of it. You know, yeah, there it was. You know, I, there it was. I don't think it was an issue of stupidity. Uh, I think it was. Yeah. Just, yeah. But I believed it. You know, I, right. I thought this is the we're, we're leading a new reformation. Right. That's what we were saying. You know, we signed a nine point five theses. You know, Ed Stevens has his nine point five theses, and we all signed it. We're like, this is a new reformation. This we, the church must convert to this message of full preterism. They must right. if they're to survive. I mean, this is how we believed, and you know. Hey, I was crazy about that. I was apolog- I was definitely an apologist. <laughs> then, and then I got in with all the main speakers. Yeah. You know, Don Preston took me under his wings, and he published uh, one of my books. He didn't publish anybody. You know, and I was being held as the theologian of full preterism because I went to Whitfield Seminary, which is where Keith Matheson and Ken Gentry, and, you know, and R.C. Sproul Jr. and all these guys had done some work at Whitfield Seminary. So I was like this poster child. You know, hey, here's one of them. And he's a full preterist, right? You know, so that's that all just it was what it was, and I was more than more than happy. You know? Yeah, it's it's very fascinating. Before I move on, a couple of things came up there that I hadn't anticipated, and which maybe I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, to expand upon. I mean, you know, you mentioned the creeds, for example, that that, that the, the Soraya book uh, began with uh, an attempted refutation of hyperpreterism based on the creeds. Uh, we, you and I believe in sola scriptura to this day, but the question I have for you is, has your opinions about the relevance and importance of creeds changed since you've come out of hyperpreterism? No, yeah, no. <laughs> okay. Right. When I w- was writing the, the book for American Vision, why I left full preterism, um, I went back over through House Divided and I looked at David Green's argument against, mainly against Ken Gentry. And, you know, now I'm out of the out of the movement and stuff, so I'm playing devil's advocate with all of this. I'm not just nodding my head and amanning whatever the full preterist says. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's a great argument. Um, uh, you know, I went back and just – and I believe that Green was, was – well, he was. And I've talked with Gentry about this. And I said, is this right? You didn't say it. And he goes, no, that's out of context. If you go back here and you read this. What Gentry is – what we were trying to do – here's our straw man. And, I, and we believe this. Because if you take certain quotes from these guys, it sounds like they're doing this. <laughs> we built an argument that these guys started with the creeds. I see. And therefore, they were placing inadvertently the creeds on par with Scripture. However, they claimed to be reformed. And we would bring in sola scriptura. I would quote the Westminster Confession of Faith. You know, it's the supreme judge in all religious matters and religious controversies is to be settled by an appeal to Scripture, the Spirit speaking through Scripture. So therefore, history can be wrong, but the Scriptures cannot be wrong. Mm. And so the Scriptures are our supreme authority. The Scriptures are... Well, in the book, uh, in the chapter on creeds that I deal with, and that should be out in September uh, sometime, it's basically done. Um, Gentry's not doing this. Gentry is saying the creeds... The confession, the Westminster, is authoritative because it lines up with Scripture. That's where it gets its authority from, is because those these statements line up with Scripture. Mm. So the first thing we have to do to any new idea is to run it first through the creeds, and then just simply note, this contradicts what we have commonly held. Now, Gentry would say, that doesn't make it wrong automatically. Mm. What we now have to do is to go to the scriptures to demonstrate that the creeds are correct hmm. and that this new view is, is, is wrong. Which is what the full preterist does. First, he notes that we're in <laughs> contradiction to the creeds. 
And then he goes to the scriptures to demonstrate why the creeds are wrong. Yeah. Well, Gentry's doing the same exact thing. He starts with sola scriptura. He starts with scripture. And uh, I get into detail about that in, in, in the book. But we, were, we just built a straw man out of it. I understand. And now I believe that the creeds are simply an expression of what the Bible teaches. That's why I hold two creeds, and particularly the Westminster Confession, um, uh, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene, Chalcedon, Athanasian. You can go down the seven ecumenical creeds and those kinds of things because I believe they got it right. I believe yeah. their exegesis got it right. That's why I hold to the creeds. I understand. So, yeah. Well, the other thing that came up, though, in, in, in answering that previous question was you mentioned that you were invited to pastor a church. And, and I, I was yeah. what I find surprising about that is that you write in your book that there are very few hyper-preterist churches, and there's a particular reason for that. Can you explain that? You count them on both hands, <laughs> and, you, and you won't need all your fingers. <laughs> and, why, and, why, and why is that? Uh, part of the problem is, is it's a relatively very small movement. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a loud vocal movement but it's a vocal minority. Um, so, and it, so pre, you know, we're scattered all around. And mm -hmm. So there's not like, you know, a thousand of us in one city or anything. There might be 30 in one city or 20 over here, or, you know, whatever. So it's just, it's tough. So it's, it, plus it's a view that's not popular. Yeah. You know, so it's, that's, that's a thing. And then the other thing is, is um, a lot of, a lot of these hyper-preterists, they don't see the relevancy of it today, of church and tithes and building a church and meeting on Sundays and elders and pastors and teachers and all that kind of stuff. So that makes, and, and that makes it that? kind of tough to build a church. Uh, what, what, what about hyperpreterism? Uh, what about their particular view of the fulfillment of prophecy leads them to believe that uh, churches are no longer relevant in that way? Mainly Ephesians uh, chapter 4, he gave... Um, Oh. Apostles, prophets, pastors to uh, to prepare God's people. Now you got to read this in the first century. I gotcha. Okay. For works of service that the body of Christ may be built up until <laughs> we all reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure, measure of the full, fullness of Christ. Well, when did that happen? Seventy A.D. Yeah. Well, then you don't know. You don't need this stuff anymore. If you know it, it's you know, the church is built. Right. Right. So. You, <laughs> you're not building anything other than uh, promoting full preterism, which I can do that at home on the internet. Sure, church. So I, I couldn't. We couldn't get the. We couldn't get uh, commitment. Yeah. We would get it for a little while, and then I would. We would. The elders would make some sort of ruling, and then we would lose three families because they didn't like that, <laughs> and they didn't feel anything about it. And I'm like, well, you can't build anything here. Yeah. <laughs> this is. So I resigned and basically wrapped it up and said I'm going back into the cleaning business I can't this is ridiculous I see yeah. well l let's return to your story then and let's start to talk about where things begin to change uh, as much difficulty as I sometimes feel like I have getting through to various groups including hyperpreterists when I'm talking with the lay people within those movements I feel a tiny glimmer of hope that maybe there's a chance you know that they might come out of that um, but I sometimes feel like I've got a lot less hope than even that glimmer when I try to reach big promoters of a view um, because there's a level of commitment there, you know. Uh, yeah. And that's what really amazes me about your story. The truth began to break through despite how committed you must have been as one of its most influential promoters. So let's talk about that. And from what I understood from your book, it was the concept of infinity that caused you to begin rethinking hyperpreterism. Can you explain that for yeah. us? Yeah. Yeah, you would think, you know, infinity, what has that got to do with anything? <laughs> um it's actually a notorious word in theology and and in science and in philosophy it's just one of those words one uh, one philosopher said you don't want infinity as your neighbor because it destroys everything wherever it goes <laughs> um there's been a few you know jason bradfield has come out you know todd dennis who, who was influential on me back in the late 90s because he had the preterist archives which single-handedly is the largest preterist website out there mm. um and so he later, you know, he left. But there wasn't a few of us like, you know, the Don Prestons and the others. There's been a lot of people that have left, but no one actively. On the, what I say, I'm, you know, I was in the inner circle, so to speak, of, in the movement. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff. Um, infinity just, it, I don't know, I was reading the Gordon Clark, and he, he had the sixth page in his book, The Incarnation, and he's, he, he goes off on this little excursus on infinity. And he brings up the elect. 
and he brings up these scriptures that Calvinists often use. God knows all of his people, all those whom you've given to me, no one shall be taken out of my hand. You know, all of those classic Calvinist texts, you know. And he noted that infinity doesn't have an all. Mm. And if God is infinite in knowledge, in terms of how the Greeks understood infinity as something that is never complete, it's always going, then God is not omniscient, or he's infinitely learning. And I had remembered, uh, I had read some material on what was called process theology, uh, Alfred uh, Whitehead, and these guys were talking about process. And that is God's becoming. He's always in the state of becoming. Hmm. He's never complete. And they were taking the idea of the Greek idea of infinity and applying it to God. Well, Clark says, well, this would run into problems if God knows all of his people. Infinity uh, has no all by definition, then God cannot know all of his people. That would be a contradiction. And then he quotes the Westminster Confession of Faith. These angels and men, those predestined and foreordained and particularly unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Um, that's the Confession 3, Section 4. And they go and quote John 10, I am the good shepherd, those who know my, uh, and I know my sheep. Um, the Lord knows all those who are his. He's chosen us before the foundation of the world. So that's where they were basing their things. And then it's just a light bulb went off. Because we believed in a thing called infinite procreation. Hmm. We believed that we interpreted Isaiah 9, 6 as of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. So therefore his government, which is made up of people, will increase for infinity. Right. So there is no end of history. It doesn't exist. History will never end. Well, you can see where the problems for omniscience would come up in terms of God knowing all of his people. Mm. And it just, it just was there. It was, like, it was there like a shining light. It just stood out, and I, th I saw it. Then I brought the problem up to Dr. Talbot, the dean of Whitfield Theological Seminary, and he was like, oh, yes, you got a problem there. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, uh, gee, you know, let me study this. And the more I studied the, how the word infinite was used by theologians who affirmed a classic theistic understanding of God, which I was not prepared to change, uh, the more I began to see that this idea of an infinite increasing history simply will not work with a sovereign God. That and actually, that, was, that was the end of that. Yeah. Well, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I had never oh, yeah. considered that. But certainly your fellow hyperpederists at the time must have had a response. They must have had some sort of explanation Paradox. for this. Paradox. Yeah. That's what, that was the response. Paradox. <laughs> how can you... Uh, I'm limiting God. Mm. Um, you're saying that God cannot know an infinite. And I said, yeah, because that's a pseudo thing. That's like, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift? That's a pseudo question. Um, it's an illogical question. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a contradiction in itself in the question itself. So it's you can't respond to a question like that because it's a the terms in the question are contradictory. So when they was and I thought this is not a good answer because in our full preterism we were so use using logic. See, we were consistent preterists. <laughs> if you were logic, well, are you telling me I, I'm going to start with logic and I'm going to end up with paradox? You know, in, in, in antinomy or contradiction or something. Right. You know, and they say, well, you're just bringing philosophy. And here was another thing. You're just bringing too much theology and philosophy of men. I thought, well, no, I'm bringing in logic and theology. And hopefully if full preterism is true, it ought to be able to go through the Christian encyclopedia and come out on the other side intact. Right. You know, we've got to test this stuff, right? We're supposed to test, you know, our ideas and constantly test semper reformandi, you know. Yeah. We're supposed to keep, and you know, I did. I, I was constantly, you know, testing this kind of stuff. Well, I hear I, so for a while I was a full preterist, and I thought, well, what's wrong with having an end of history? We'll just have an end of history. You know, what's wrong with that? And oh, some were all right with it. Some were adamantly opposed to it. So I'm just curious, why would hyperpreterists be opposed to that? Because the Bible nowhere hints at the uh, end. Uh, it, what was our bumper sticker? Um, the Bible nowhere talks about the end of time, only the time of the end. I see. Yeah. Okay. So, so this was something that started to get you thinking. Uh, but another issue that you found to be a problem for hyperpreterism is what John 6 has to say about the resurrection of the dead. Explain that for us. Well, the Westminster Divines 
that was, you know, the scripture proofs, if you have a Westminster Confession, you'll see underneath, this, you know, that you have scripture proofs. And that was part of the original text. These were the proofs that they were using to, to write the summaries that they were writing. And John 6 was right there. You know, another, the number can neither increase nor be diminished. So they were deducing that from John 6. And so I went back to John 6. Well, how are they getting that out of John 6? Um, in that passage, again, here's stuff that just, you know, it leaps out. You never see it before. You just never saw it. Mm. Not that I, I wasn't looking for it, number one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a full preterist. I wasn't looking for anything that would oppose full preterism. Um, here he says, and for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up on the, on the last day. Yeah. And then he's, uh, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away for I've come down from heaven and so forth and so on. Uh, and this is the will of him who sent me that I shall seek none of all that he has given me and raise them up at the last day. I thought, mm-hmm, okay. Uh, the thing that hit me is Jesus continues to say this in John 6, and then he comes to, it is written by the prophets, they will all be taught of God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns of him comes to me. I will raise them up to the last day. I went back, he's quoting Isaiah 54, 13. Well, Isaiah there in that passage is talking about the New Covenant, the times of the New Covenant. This is when Israel, what we would call in theology, the uh, Isaianic Exodus. This was the new Exodus that Paul's, you know, envisioning that the events of Jesus Christ ushers in the true Exodus. Mm. And so you get all of that typology. You understand uh, all of that. You know, there's an Exodus going. Jesus is the new Moses. True. Yeah. He's, he's, leading, he's leading us out from the Pharaoh of sin and death. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, which is all very good stuff. But... This is New Covenant believers. These are, these, are, this, these are believers that are regenerated by the Spirit and taught of the Lord by that immediate work of the Holy Spirit where you say Jesus is Lord by the Spirit. This is something. And I, it just hit me. I was like, this can't be limited to 8070. There's, there's no way. Um, this, these are New Covenant believers. All New Covenant believers are brought to the Lord by the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, when are they going to be raised? At the last day. And I thought, well, I've already got infinity in an end of history. And there it was. It just, they just came together. And I thought, last day. Oh, crap. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm really in trouble. And, and, I, and I just, it just convinced me. I was, and I read every commentary I could get my hands on on John 6. They were all basically saying the same thing. And it just convinced me. I just, last day. But infinity and end of history came first. And then took me to John 6 and I started and there it was last day and I thought oh man uh, I'm not a full preterist anymore mm. you know and I was excited about it because it did it con it convicted me I was I was convinced in my conscience that I had gotten it wrong and then that led me to 1 Corinthians 15 where I had interpreted that as a corporate body view you know, Max King mm -hmm. and I know uh, you're going to ask about that a little later on but yeah. uh, and perhaps that's a segue you know, there, but that's, you know, that, yeah, I'll let that go. But that John 6 takes me to 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah. So we'll stop there. Well, <laughs> we're going to continue there, but just in a second, because another thing that you pointed out in your book was that it would, if the, if I understood you correctly, what you were saying was that uh, by interpreting the last day there as referring to AD 70, the logical consequence of that would be that the believers in the 2,000 years since approximately were raised in AD 70. Which is what some people say. But but how does that make any sense? Which makes it a redemptive event because now you've got a problem set up because according to Romans chapter 6, I was raised in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I wasn't raised at the parousia right. of Jesus Christ in AD 70. I was raised in him in his resurrection. Right. So now we've got this huge elephant in the room. Yeah. And I have not yet heard a theological response um, um, to that that does not just confused i see you know and that see that was the other thing is now you now your full preterism is now entering into the realms of changing and redefining the areas of soteriology right so so now we're, it's not just eschatology we're not in kansas anymore yeah right <laughs> now now we're wandering into the other things and we're changing and redefining everything and i thought wait a minute um you know this is 
you know, we're, we're going a little. Problem. Yeah, we've got a problem. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, like we said, we're going to return to First Corinthians 15 and the resurrection in a moment. But first, in, in the book, you noted that hyperpreterists believe that they're forced to interpret the text the way they do, these texts we've been talking about, because yeah. they think that the so-called time texts are you know, undeniably pointing to the fulfillment of everything in the first century. Um, as a preterist, and I'm sure you would agree to a certain extent with this as well, I, I do believe that these time texts are very powerful and mm -hmm. do, in fact, indicate that much of biblical prophecy was fulfilled back then. But... But hyperpreterists say they prove more than that. And, and, and so as one example, uh, in the book of Revelation, as you know, time texts yep. uh, bookend the book. And hyperpreterists will say, look, they bookend the book, so everything that's written in the book of Revelation had to have been fulfilled, including Revelation 20, 21, and 22, the resurrection and the new heaven and new earth and all of that. Yep. So, so why do you think that this and other similar time texts uh, in the scripture do make a case that a lot happened then, but not everything? Well, we don't... Um... I don't. I, I pay attention to the legitimate time text. Not all of the time texts that we used are uh, proof texts of you know the timing. For instance, I, you're familiar with the the little tricky word mellow. Mm. Yeah, and well, that's not a word that means about to or near. It, it can, but it depends on the context. And usually, where it's translated about to is it's it, it's something that's about to happen. Literally, you know, I'm about to take out the trash. Um, it's not something about to happen, and then five, 15 years later it happens. Mm. It's it's rarely used in, in that in that sense. And it, the other main meaning that it has is something certainly is going to take place. So it's sharpening the future because it's always in the future. So it it just gives certainty. So that's de that whole thing is debatable. So all those mellow time texts that that's that can go those are not proof texts for the nearness. Um, some of the texts that talk about the kingdom of God is at hand or near. And the ingus is the word, or ingizo is the, uh, is, the Greek, is, the, is the verb. If you look at any standard lexicon, it has two attachments to it. There's near in terms of proximity, or there's near in terms of time. Near in terms of proximity is, you know, uh, this stapler on my desk is near. It's right mm. hand. And, and literally, that's what the word means, at hand. It's at Within arm's, arm's length, yeah. Yeah, it's right, it's right here. Um, Jesus, and many scholars take it as this, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, what he was saying is, I am the kingdom. You're looking at it. I'm, I'm, right, I'm standing right here. Mm. And Luke seems to go out of his way to do this. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Mm. In other words, it's near. Yeah. Pay attention, you know, because it's right in front of you. Right. Well, that eliminates a good deal of all of that near kind of stuff. But then you have the other ones. This generation, some of you standing here shall not taste that. You know, you have you have the other legitimate things. Even the words like suddenly and quickly. These are typical words that we find in the Old Testament uh, several times. Bruce Sandy has documented, I think, over 25 instances where suddenly or quickly uh, tacus, in tacus takes place. And it just simply means that. It's just suddenly. God's going to show up in judgment on Edom. Suddenly. In a moment. In a, in a day. You're mm -hmm. going to be wiped out. You know, you hear that kind of stuff. And this is you know, just what the word means. It doesn't carry with it the attachment um, near in terms of, of time. So you can start eliminating that kind of um, things. But then there are legitimate time texts that speak of AD 70. And I don't know of a scholar that would disagree with that aspect. I just think that full preterist, and I can't go into all of the, the texts relevant sure. for time. We have articles on our website, which I'll give out later, that deal with this. And my book also deals a little bit more in detail with it. But the, the, uh, the strongest argument of the full preterist arsenal is the time text. But I think he makes too much of them. I see. Yeah. Okay. They, they put too much emphasis on it. But, the, but that it, they don't start with resurrection of the dead. <laughs> because they can't. <laughs> uh -uh, no. Yeah. Gotta, that comes much, much later. Yeah. Let's just get them hooked by the time text, which that's what hooked me. Right. And once I'm hooked... And I'm convinced that 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about Matthew 24. Well, that forces me to redefine 1 Corinthians 15 than the way it was normally traditionally understood. Right. Yeah, yeah it forces you to do that. You have to. You don't have a choice. Yeah. And, and I might just add really quick before we move on to the resurrection issue that uh, I've always found it persuasive that while the time texts if they are legitimate <clears throat> time texts, and I think that they are, uh, book bookending the book of Revelation, uh, they... There's something 
there's a there's a there's a, a millennium there. You know now now of course you know and we can't get into the details on the show. They have a particular understanding of what that thousand years in the symbology refers to. But uh, but I, I think it's very evident there that yeah everything up until the onset of the millennium was in fact going to happen very soon. It, it, but that doesn't mean therefore that everything following the millennium um, is also going to right. You know is it, do you think that's legitimate? I think that there is an aspect of a progressive unfolding that's there, and what we see in John is the idealized perfection and vision of what is coming down out of heaven. Yeah. Now, how long is that going to take until what John sees is manifested on earth as it is in heaven? It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has set. Okay. It's, so, so it sounds like uh, you're basically I describing un- something like post-millennialism, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And, but, and we draw very heavily on that. And I think Luke, in his gospel, goes out of his way to do that again. Now, yeah. and closer reading of Luke. It's, it's, it's appropriate that we mention post-millennialism because although I am not yet convinced of it, being an all-millennialist, uh, I, I, that's fine. Well, well, but the reason I bring this up is because you're, this interview right now that people are listening to right now uh, followed a two-part interview that I did with a post-millennialist, which I found very compelling. So, you know, it's kind of... Um, I'm my view is, yeah, my view where I'm at right now on the whole millennial thing, and I take a you know a little bit different understanding of the millennium, but you know, this is comp- you don't in order for my arguments to be convincing against full preterism, it's not going to lead you to post millennialism. I'm sure. perfectly fine with all millennialists. Yeah. I think that a lot of all millennialists I've talked to are quite comfortable with what I say, and they're like, yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, you know, okay. Post millennialism gets more into the other things that. Um, uh, other aspects of applying God's law. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the, you know, the application of God's law today. That's going to be one of the touch points between. Oh, you're talking about theonomy. Yeah, yeah okay. that's that's you know for a post-millennialist, theonomy is almost required. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know? I wasn't aware of that. I'm gonna have to. Yeah, it's it's almost a requirement. I mean, you gotta you gotta replace the nation's laws with something. I see. <laughs> okay. Or well, let's let's leave that on the table for now. Yeah, that's, that's not required to leave full preterism. You got to be a theonomist. I, I don't want to make you can be, you know, that's not a requirement. Postmillennialism is not a requirement to leave full preterism. So okay. I wanted to make that clear. Yeah, that's good. No, I appreciate. Yeah. Well, there you have it, part one of my interview with former hyperpreterist Sam Frost. It's an amazing story. I really enjoyed it, and I think you're going to enjoy the rest of the interview as well. So stay tuned for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then...